All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Garanga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada and Krishna Prasaya Bhutalashi, Mati Bhakti Vedanta Swami, Tinamaya. Namaste, Saraswati Deve, Gauravani Pacharya, Nivasesasana, Namaskatari Sita. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Uta Parakamalam Shri Guru and Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Samsujivam Sadvoitam Sadhudutam Padijanya Sanita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Ravita Shri Vishakam Vitamsha Antikapacha Vishak, you can see the Vita, Titanam Bhavanivu and Vaishnavam Jaya Jaya Shri Chaitanya Jaya Nityananda Jaya Dvaita Chandra Jaya Gora Bhakta Vrinda Jaya Jaya Shri Chaitanya Jaya Nityananda Jaya Dvaita Chandra Jaya Gora Bhakta Vrinda so just before we start, we have some new books here. We have Raghunath Goswami's Splendid Instructions to the Mind, which I taught here a couple years ago. So that's for the serious devotees who want to attain spontaneous love for Krishna and Vrindavan. It's a step-by-step guide, how to deal with the mind and conquer all your anartas. It's got Bhaktivinoda's commentaries. It's profusely illustrated, got commentaries by contemporary Iskand Vaishnavas also. Then we have two new books. There's one, Essence Seekers, which is Krishna Conscious Fiction. It's a novel that takes you from material life to Krishna Prema. And it's written in language for the public, so you can give it to, if you've got non-devotee family or uh, friends or whatever, you can give it to them. But the sannyasis write me and tell me that it makes them cry. So (laughs) we have that one. Um, That's suitable for about ages uh, 12 and up. It's not for children. But if you have teenagers who are interested in Krishna conscious novel and then the small one is a book on chanting how to become free from offense in chanting and Gazelle is going to be selling them and if you want after the class like sign them we have a very very limited number of copies here so, just
Ateva, therefore, Krishna, Lord Krishna, Mula, original, Jagat Karana, the cause of the cosmic manifestation, Prakriti, material nature, Karana, cause, Yaiche, exactly like, Ajagalastana, nipples on the neck of a goat. Prabhupada's translation in purport. Therefore, Lord Krishna is the original cause of the cosmic manifestation. Prakriti is like the nipples on the neck of a goat, for they cannot give any milk. Purport. The external energy composed of pradhan or prakriti as the ingredient supplying portion and maya as the causal portion is known as maya shakti. Inner material nature is not the actual cause of the material manifestation. For, Karana, for, Karan, for Karanakashai Vishnu, Mahavishnu, the plenary expansion of Krishna activates all the ingredients. It is in this way that material nature has the power to supply the ingredients. The example given is that iron has no power to heat or burn. But after coming in contact with fire, the iron becomes red hot and can then diffuse heat and burn other things. Material nature is like iron, for it has no independence to act without the touch of Vishnu, who is compared to fire. Lord Vishnu activates material nature by the power of his glance, and then the iron-like material nature becomes a material supplying agent, just as iron made red hot becomes a burning agent. Material nature cannot independently become an agent for supplying the material ingredients. This is more clearly explained by Sri Kapiladev, an incarnation of Godhead, in Srimad Bhagavatam 3.28.40. Yat o mukad vishpulingad dumadva piswa sambhavat ap yat ma vain abhimatad yatagni pritad mukat. Although smoke, flaming wood, and sparks are all considered together as ingredients of a fire, the flaming wood is nevertheless different from the fire, and the smoke is different from the flaming wood. The material elements, earth, water, fire, etc., are like smoke. The living entities are like sparks, and material nature as Pradhan is like the flaming wood. But all of them together are recipients of power from the Supreme Personality of Godhead and are thus able to manifest their individual capacities. In other words, the Supreme Personality of Godhead is the origin of all manifestations. Material nature can supply only when it is activated by the glance of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Just as a woman can deliver a child after being impregnated by the semina of a man, so material nature can supply the material elements after being glanced upon by Mahavishnu. Therefore, Pradhana cannot be independent of the superintendence of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. This is confirmed in the Bhagavad Gita 9.10, Maya Dakshina Prakriti Suyate Satcharam. Prakriti, the total material energy, works under the superintendence of the Lord. The original source of the material elements is Krishna. Therefore, the attempt of the atheistic Shankha philosophers to consider material nature the source of these elements, forgetting Krishna, is useless. 
by trying to get milk from the nipple-like bumps of skin hanging on the neck of a goat. Adaiva Krishna Mula Jagat Karana Prakriti Karana Yanche Ajad Kalasana. Therefore, Lord Krishna is the original cause of the cosmic manifestation. Prakriti is like the nipples on the neck of a goat, for they cannot give any milk. So that sign about when class ends, does that include questions or is that before the questions? Before questions, and questions till 8.30? Is that correct? Okay. So here, Srila Prabhupada is talking about spirit and matter and spiritualized matter. There can also be materialized spirit. So I think that those of us who are sitting here today or listening remotely, that our desire is to remember Krishna at every moment, yes? Isn't that what we like? Wouldn't we like it if we could be Krishna conscious all the time? To always be aware of Krishna's presence. Ultimately, to be seeing Krishna face to face wherever we are and whatever we are doing. Yes? Would everybody like that? Yes. yes. And conversely, of course, never to forget Krishna. So that's a little difficult because we are apparently in a world of matter. We are in a world where Krishna appears to be absent and everything appears to be just dull. You know, if I did this to any of you, you would make a sound of pain. Yes? You'd say, stop hitting me, but I can hit the chair and it doesn't say anything. It doesn't say, why are you hitting me? Right? I can put a knife in the chair and nobody will arrest me. Isn't it? It's just matter. It's just dull matter. And so in this world of dull matter, it appears that finding God here is very difficult. Right? We tend to see just material objects. So there's a hint given here as to how we can find Krishna everywhere. And also, although it's not specifically mentioned here, we should also speak about how seemingly, in a spiritual process, you could forget God. So how in material life could you find him and how even in a spiritual process could you lose him? So what do we mean by matter and spirit anyway? You know, from Krishna's perspective, Prabhupada makes this point all the time, everything is spiritual. Krishna doesn't really perceive things as matter and spirit exactly. Prabhupada gives the example of an electrician who can use electricity to power a heater or an air conditioner. So we may experience this is hot, this is cold. We experience opposite things. But to the electrician, it's all simply electricity. Yes. So from Krishna's perspective, all of his energy is spiritual. But what is the difference exactly? So as we were saying, the difference is, right, I can, I can punch the table. And the table itself is not aware that I've punched it. Correct? It has no awareness. Whereas if I punch any of you, you will immediately be aware. Oh, somebody has punched me. Or even just, if I just push the table. Right? We're aware that someone touches us. In fact, we're even aware of other people's mentality. Isn't it a fact? Right? We can pick up, like if you ever walked into a room where people have just had an argument, like you walk in interrupting an argument, everybody immediately goes quiet. But you can understand there was an argument. Yes? And if you're around people who are very much loving each other and caring for each other and affectionate to each other, you can also notice that, correct? Even if they don't say anything. So we can pick up on people's moods. The table can't do that. The table can't pick up on anyone's moods. It's not aware of physical contact. 
It's not aware of anyone's moods. It also has no independent desire. Right? This table had, it had no desire to be a table. Once the soul was gone from the tree from which it was made, the tree, the, the remaining wood had no desire. It wasn't like, well, why did you make me into a table? You know, I wanted to be a book stand. Or I wanted to be a chair. And, you, you know, you, you're not letting me exist. It has no desire like that. And if we say, okay, you know, I'm done with you. I'm going to dismantle you. I'm going to unscrew you and make you into something else. It doesn't particularly care. But, you know, we care, yes? If someone asks us to do something we don't like, we would, I don't want to do that thing. I want to do something else. I want to do such and such with my, my life. I have a, a nature that I want to exhibit. Whereas matter doesn't particularly care, has no desires. So how can we say, then, that from Krishna's perspective, matter is also spiritual? Well, there is somebody who is aware when I touch the table. Who is aware when I touch the table? Krishna. I mean, I'm aware because I can feel the touch of the table on my body. But as far as the awareness in the table itself, is Krishna aware when I touch the table? Yes. Is Krishna aware through the table of the mentality and the consciousness of the people that use the table? Yes. Does Krishna have some desire for how the wood is used or is not used? Yes. So there is some awareness on a physical level, on a subtle level, and in terms of desire, in terms of the table, from Krishna. Now, I might have some desire if I just own the table. Like if this was my personal table. Like this is my bag. Okay, I own this bag. So I do have some awareness if other people touch my bag. I mean, not all the time. Otherwise, no thieves could ever be successful. But I do have some awareness some of the time if somebody were to touch my bag. And I even have some awareness of the mentality of somebody who would touch my bag. Yes? Right? And I have some desires for how I want this bag to be used. However, that's from my perspective, looking at the bag. I don't have any abilities to sense what the bag experiences, correct? Mm -hmm. It's as an external observer. Now, Krishna also certainly is the external observer, but is he also within every atom of that bag? Yes. yes. Is that bag part of his universal body? Yes. Now, I'm within a body. All of us are within a body, yes? Maybe we have somebody here who's not within a body. Hare Krishna. But at least everyone I can perceive here is within a body. So, within our body, we have living cells. Correct? Right? My stomach cells, my brain cells, my heart cells, my skin cells, they're alive. But I also have some dead cells that right now are part of my body. What dead cells do I have that are part of my body? Oh, each of us. What, what dead cells do we have that are part of our body? The outer portion of the skin. Not the inner portion, but the outer portion. What else? Hair. Hair. And? Nails. Nails. 
So the ends of my nails, the white portion of my nails, the ends of my hair, and the outer portion of my skin is dead. So the ends of my hair has no feeling in and of itself. But if someone touches that part of my hair, am I aware of it? Yes. So we can say Krishna has a spiritual energy, that's us, the jivas. Krishna is aware of what we feel and what we think because we're part of him. But I am also aware. Krishna is aware of what the table is experiencing, but the table is not aware. So that is the difference, even for Krishna, between matter and spirit. So I'm aware of something touching the dead part of my skin. I'm aware of someone touching the dead part of my hair. I'm aware of someone touching the dead part of my nails. I'm aware of where they are from inside. Not just from outside like I am with the bag. So Krishna is also aware of what happens to matter, not just from the outside as an observer, but also from the inside. Because it's part of him. My bag is not part of me in any kind of sense. But for Krishna, this table is quite literally part of him. It is part of his universal body. So there is a distinction in that the table is not aware of its own existence, like I am aware of my own existence, but Krishna is aware from the inside. So each of the little cells in my body are aware of their own existence. But the outer nails are not. So this is matter and spirit. And something that's not aware of its own existence, that has, there's no soul in the table. There's only the supreme soul, there's no jiva soul. So it cannot act on its own. It can act according to the desire of he who is within it and he who pervades it. Right? Just like I can make my clothes act according to my desire. That's another example. Of course, my clothes are not quite part of me in the same way that my hair and my nails are. But I can make my hair act according to my desire. At least that's the idea. You know, I have kind of funny hair. It doesn't always act according to my desire. But that's, that's the concept, yes? So Krishna can make matter act according to his desire. And if he doesn't do that, the matter doesn't have any independent action. So people may see matter acting and thinking it's acting independently, but it's not. You know, it's not that my hair independently puts itself into a bun. If I didn't do anything with it, it would just become ratty and matted. And matter is also like that. If Krishna doesn't do anything with it, it just kind of falls apart. If he does something with it, it can turn into all sorts of wonderful shapes. Like you can take hair and make it into, you know, you can look at, don't bother, but you can look it up, unless you're doing the deity's hair or helping somebody for a wedding or something. You know, but you can look up thousands and thousands of different ways that you can style hair, right? Actually, Krishna learned that in the Gurukula, how to dye and style hair. So it looks like this material world is acting independently, but it's not. Krishna is the source. And from Krishna's perspective, everything here is alive. Either with its own life and his life, or with his life. 
So we can spiritualize matter by having a consciousness that it's part of Krishna. As soon as we become aware that matter is part of Krishna, then matter will also act spiritually for us. It will have a spiritual effect. Now, we don't want to see matter spiritually as conditioned souls. That's why we've come here. And that's why there's material energy altogether. Material energy exists so that souls who don't want to be conscious of Krishna can forget him and can be in a world where it appears that he is absent. Just like, you know, if you're a teenager and you want to play a computer game that your parents don't want you to play, you wait until they're out of the house. Or you go in a room and close the door and put on headphones. You put yourself in a situation where you lose an awareness that you are in your parents' house and that probably your computer and your headphones belong to your parents. That the electricity is paid for by your parents, that your parents are feeding you, that your parents are paying the rent or the mortgage and so forth. You want to lose that awareness in order to do something that they don't want you to do. Yes? You don't want to be conscious of them. If someone said, hey, don't you want to be conscious of your parents? You'd go, no way. I want to forget they even exist. Right? Yes? Everybody here was a teenager? You remember? Well, you did that in school. You know, I, I remember in school that we would, uh, you know, we, school was generally boring. And so we would pass notes. Right? And you try to do that when the teacher's not looking. You can set up your own little, like, private society going on in the classroom. They tell me now the students are doing this on Google Docs. Like, the teachers will put up a document for the students to share and comment on as part of their studies. But the kids will write comments in there that are just like passing notes to each other. And then if the teacher looks at it, they just hit resolve and it disappears. So when you want to be rebellious, then you want to forget God. So that's what this world is designed for. With matter that appears that it's just dead, and Krishna doesn't seem to be anywhere. And even people take religion and materialize it, make it materialistic. Generally, people take religion and use it just for dharma, artha, kama, moksha. Use it just so they can say, well, I'm a good person in the world, and I'm going to become very prosperous in my religion, and I'm going to enjoy my senses better with religion, and I'm going to get liberated with religion. Isn't that a fact? Therefore, Krishna says, When dharma becomes a dharma, then I show up. How does dharma become a dharma? It happens very, very quickly. Krishna is representative, preach something transcendental, and people make it into immediately something else. Oh, you're supposed to worship God for money. You know, you're supposed to worship God so you'll have a happy family. You're supposed to worship God so everybody will be righteous in the world. You're supposed to worship God so you can get free of distress. And religion is just a series of rituals. It's a mechanical series of rituals that if you just light this candle in this way, this kind of candle, this fragrance of candle, and you put it in front of this thing in this way, and you say these words, usually in a foreign language you don't understand, 
And, you know, if you just do those things, right, it's kind of like you're taught in materialistic society. If you just sit quietly in the class and you do your work and you get A's and you pass your exams, then you'll get a good job and you'll make a lot of money. And you have a lot of money, then you'll have a beautiful house and you'll attract an attractive romantic partner and you'll be happy, right? So they use religion like that. Just say these words you don't understand and do this little ritual and say this little thing and, you know, then you'll get all your material desires fulfilled. So they make religion materialistic. And Prabhupada says, we were just reading this in Brisbane yesterday morning, how, you know, if you're teaching scripture just to make some money and if you're hearing scripture just to improve your material situation, you don't get any spiritual benefit from it at all. Or sometimes very, very little. So then you're dealing with God, but what's happening is all materialistic. Just like, it's really heavy, this one class Prabhupada says, if you chant with offense, you just get material pains and pleasures. He said, if you chant on the clearing stage, you get liberation, and only if you chant on the pure stage, you get love of God. So that's the bad news. The good news, I always like to give the good news last so the good news is that we can also use ostensibly material things to spiritually enliven us to the point that we also don't really see a distinction between spirit and matter. Now, of course, if you say that to materialistic people, everything's spiritual, then they'll say, okay, my smoking is spiritual. You know, my cow slaughter is spiritual. Everything's spiritual. So it has to be very properly understood. Seeing everything as spiritual means that we see everything as Krishna's energy and therefore see Krishna's presence there. Just like the Kurus had to suffer for so long because they dragged Draupadi by the hair. Yes? They dragged her by her hair. Now hair is again dead. But because they offended her hair, Therefore, they had to suffer. So we see this material energy like that. Oh, it's Krishna's hair. The trees are the hairs on Krishna's body. Or sometimes the clouds are compared to his hair. The mountains are his bones. The sun, moon are his eyes. And he is the light of all luminous objects. So to be aware right now, there's light in this room. Yes, both from the electric lights, which are ultimately getting their energy from the sun, and from the sun. Can you be aware that there's light in the room? That light is Krishna. He says he's the heat in fire. So it's, it's also kind of pleasantly warm in this room if we can become aware of the warmth. He says that is him. He says he joins with the breath of air. And Arjuna says, seeing the universal form, you are air. Can we be aware of our breathing? That is him. Heat and fire means also the heat within our own bodies. Can we become aware of the warmth in our body? That is Him. Our ability 
Each of us is sitting. We're not just falling over. We have an ability to sit. And now everybody is awake, even the two sleepy people. So that ability to sit and that ability to be awake, can we be aware of our ability to hear, to see, to think? That is him. Our intelligence to be able to read this purport and consider it, that is him. We become aware that this is him. It's actually Krishna. We're dealing with Krishna. And we can start by seeing it's Krishna's energy. But ultimately, with the Chincha Veda Veda Tattva, we feel that that's him. Premanjana Charita Bhakti Vilochanena Santa Sadaiva Radiation Vilochananti Yamshayma Sundarama Chincha Vinasarupa. When Ramananda Roy saw Chaitanya Mahaprabhu as Krishna, and he said, What is going on? I thought you were sannyasi, but I look at you and you're Krishna. And, and wait, now you have a golden complexion. Who are you? And Lord Chaitanya says, Oh, you see Krishna everywhere. Great devotees, they see everything. In every atom, they see Krishna. And Ramananda Roy says, Stop playing around with me. I know who you are. But the devotees, they actually see everything as spiritual. Everything, all the time. The fragrance of the earth, the smell that comes after rain. Even in death, the dead rotting tree that provides the nutrients for the new life to grow. The beginning, the middle, the end of all things. This is all Krishna. So how do we come to that awareness? Well, this is what sadhana bhakti is supposed to do. Of course, sadhana bhakti is also supposed to bring us to a direct, personal, loving relationship with Krishna and Raja. But as part of that, our sadhana bhakti is supposed to make us aware that everything is actually Krishna. Krishna is present everywhere. In fact, that's why so much of the Bhagavatam and the Bhagavad Gita is devoted to this topic. There's so many chapters in the Bhagavatam describing the universal form of the Lord, and so many verses in the Bhagavad Gita describing how we can understand Krishna's presence in the world. Because we have to do that as well. It's not that we just see the world as some you know, evil, dead thing, and that we're focused on another realm only. But simultaneously, we're focused on Krishna's eternal pastimes in the spiritual world, as well as how he is present here. So we do that two ways, as, as practice bhakti. Practice bhakti involves the body and the mind. And eventually, it involves the soul proper. So in the beginning of bhakti, it's just on the level, basically, of the body and the mind with a little bit of desire from the soul. The soul's pretty much sleeping. The soul's going, I think I want this. Maybe, maybe, I think I want this. Kind of quietly. So we take the body and we use the body in such a way that we pretend that we understand that matter is spiritual. We act as if we know. We use matter in Krishna's service. 
We make a temple out of it. Right? We take the food and we offer it to Krishna. We offer Krishna flowers and garments made of fabric. We offer him incense. We offer him lamps. We start, we use matter as if we understood that Krishna was there. Even if we don't. Even if it's just a theoretical, philosophical, intellectual construct. Of course, if it is just an intellectual, philosophical construct, then we're not very good at doing it all the time. And we may still kind of slide into the using matter for my own sense gratification, often in the name of service. That's something that's talked about in Manashiksha. How we fool ourselves into thinking I'm using it for Krishna when we're actually just still using it for our own independence and gratification. But anyway, we take a practice as far as we're able, gradually, gradually, of using matter in Krishna's service. And then we have a mental practice where we make a deliberate effort. That's what practice means. We make a deliberate effort to understand that Krishna is present everywhere. And then, like Prabhupada is saying in this purport, it's like red-hot iron that has as much capacity to set something on fire as fire does. There's no difference. If you, you've seen a blacksmith working, I assume, everybody has seen? And they take the iron out of the fire and it's red-hot. We don't see too many blacksmiths in the modern day, so this example may be a little difficult for us but we can think of it maybe like a pot on the stove that gets as hot as the fire it's sitting on. If you touch the hot pot while it's on the stove, you'll get just as burned as you will if you touch the fire directly. It will have a similar effect. Yes? We've all touched a hot pot, I would assume, in our life. Everybody's had that experience. Even if we haven't seen a blacksmith. So we have this consciousness. And that's something we need to cultivate. It's not just something that's going to fall on us. It's not that if we just use our body as if we believe that everything is spiritual, that one day it'll just be like, Whoo! oh yeah. But sadhana bhakti means we make a deliberate effort, both with our body and our mind. And as we do that, the soul starts waking up more and more and more and more and more. And as the soul starts waking up more and more and more, then the soul is amenable to Krishna's revelation and then Krishna starts revealing, here I am, I'm everywhere. My energy is everywhere. And I am everywhere. And then we start not only seeing Krishna present everywhere in his energy, but we start seeing Krishna, the person, everywhere. And at that time, we may appear to be living in this world, but we're not at all. And for someone in that state, there is no material world. It doesn't, just like for Krishna, there's no material world. So for an enlightened devotee, there's no such thing as a material world. Therefore, the devotee says, Janme, Janme, Prabhu say, I don't care if I take birth again. It just doesn't make any difference. That's the, the surrender of the soul. We surrender our body by using our body in Krishna's service, surrender our mind by using it in Krishna's service. We surrender our soul by saying, keep the Janma right. I don't care if I become an insect as long as I can do some service. It just doesn't matter. Because in that frame of consciousness, it really doesn't matter. Like Gopal Kumar, who traveled between the material and spiritual world, and he said the only time he knew the difference was when he was en route, you know, when he was traveling. But when he was there, he didn't see any difference. 
And that, Krishna says in the sixth chapter, is the actual freedom from material miseries. There is just no such thing as material miseries anymore for such a person. And there's no such thing as material pleasure either. Everything is pleasure. Everything is unlimited pleasure. Such a person is not just getting some temporary sense pleasure from eating a pizza. They're, they're getting eternal expanding pleasure from eating prasadam that doesn't stop after they've finished eating the pizza. So that's where we want to go to. And then we won't make this mistake that matter is something that exists in and of itself without any kind of, of cause behind it, without any spirit behind it, and that the whole world can come from matter. What an unfortunate philosophical idea that matter is God that the origin of everything was just some you know, singularity some infinitesimally dense and infinitesimally some chunk that exploded randomly and made you know plumeria trees and oak trees and kangaroos and people, monkeys so to think that everything's mad that's actually very unfortunate but it comes from this idea that I want to forget that there's God that's the ultimate way of forgetting that there's God there's only matter of course but when you say there's only matter then I'm also only matter then I'm not actually any better than a table that's a pretty unfortunate way to see oneself isn't it And of course, that way of seeing oneself leads to mistreating oneself, hating oneself. Krishna says the demons are envious of their own self. They hate the fact that they're a soul. They hate the fact that they're a servant of God. And that's what leads to exploitation of all of the living beings. It's easy to exploit another living being if you think they're just a table. It leads to exploitation between gender, between people who have more money than others, people who have more power than others people who have more status than others, between different species. That all comes from thinking that everything is just matter. But when you see that Sarvakalamidam Brahma, everything is actually spirit, then automatically all that exploitation is gone and there's only love and respect and consideration. So we will end here. It is 8.16, so that was pretty good. Questions, comments, additions, corrections? Yes. Do we have a wandering mic? Is this being broadcast anywhere? Right? It's on radio. It's on radio. Okay. FM, FM radio. Because okay. I was not seeing a camera. I guess there's one over there, huh? But it doesn't go. Yes. I uh, think you. It was a, a lovely explanation you um, given us a broad understanding. Um, my question is that this word spiritual is used in all sorts of contexts. I was wondering if you could explain how we can, in a simple way, explain what the real word spiritual means. Oh my, what a question. I mean, I'm talking about maybe non-devotees. To see that there is divine life everywhere, to see everything in relation with the divine life in a mood of loving service. 
Yes. Is that all right? Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, um, I was just a couple of days ago reading the definition of that. I was searching for that in Prabhupada's purports, and one of the purports Prabhupada says spirituality means that you identify as being a part of God or a servant of God. That's, you know, on the rest of the identity. Very nice, thank you. But you'd have to see everything that way too. Because otherwise there's a lot of people who thought they were a servant of God and went around doing all kinds of nasty things in the name of being a servant of God. There's a lot of people slaughtering animals in the name of being a servant of God. And killing other people who they don't think are serving God in the right way. So one would have to one would have to see everything as connected, not just one's own identity. Have to go away. That's a good start, but that could be devotional service in the mode of ignorance. Yes. Yes, well, that's because there's a table right here, so it was yeah. convenient. Yeah. Um, In education, we call that an object lesson. So, um, I, I heard somewhere that, uh, like, stones, which are inherent matter, there's some special stones which are actually jivas that are living inside that stone. Well, Prabhupada talks about mountains that are alive. I mean, I think... So I spent some time on the big island of Hawaii, which is technically called Hawaii, but since all the seven islands are also called Hawaii, it's kind of confusing. But anyway, I spent some time on the big island of Hawaii, and I'll tell you, we've got some living mountains there. That's for sure. And all the local Hawaiians know that she's alive. They call her Pele. And they, they, I mean, the people who live there, they treat that mountain as a living being. Very much so. You know, she's kind of an intense, angry lady. <laughs> very fiery. Very, very, very fiery lady. But uh, they let her do what she wants. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They let her do what she wants. Like I know one devotee who's got a wife like that, he lets her do what she wants. <laughs> Actually, no, at least two devotees who have wives. And they, just, they just stay out of her way. So with Pele, I mean, she's always exploding. Um, at least since the 80s, she's been erupting continuously. And recently, she got really upset about something. I don't know what she got really upset about. I'm sure there's a lot of things going on on that island that would upset her. And so all these fissures opened up. and um, There was one town in danger of being completely just finished. Pahoa. So she... She was also a road in danger because she'll cross a road and when she crosses a road, the road becomes impassable until the lava dries, until she goes another way and the lava dries and then you can blast through the lava. By the way, I don't mind children. Don't like that. So anyway, when, when she was threatening the road, a lot of people said, why don't you do something to change the direction of her flow? And they said, that's not our tradition here. We don't do that. We respect Pele. She can go where she wants, and she can do what she wants. 
So uh, what they did was they prayed to her and made offerings to her. That's what they did. And she stopped. She did not cross the road. The town was not. There was one house that burned only. And everybody left. I mean, the schools closed. The post office closed. They all left. But everybody came back. So they're definitely living mountains. So there are, there are very active living mountains, there are sleeping mountains, and then there are dead mountains. Right? Am I correct? Yes? So the living mountains are growing. And then they go to sleep. You say that's a dormant. We have active volcanoes, dormant. Dormant means literally sleeping. And then we have extinct volcanoes. So yes, there are. There are definitely living mountains, living stone. I don't know if there's any other kind of stone that's alive, but at least that one. Anybody else? Anything else? Yes. For the class you mentioned, the Prabhupada said that when we chanting, if we are chanting, um, not ex- that's not experiencing the holy name and uh, for different purposes, then we just get material happiness and distress. And yet we I re-listened to that lecture, to that part of that lecture, over and over again, and I was like, did he really say that? Did he have to say that? Why did Prabhupada have to say that? Yeah, that's what he said. He said, if we're chanting with defense, we just get material happiness and distress. And then we also hear about Namabas, um, that even just by chanting um, Longa long Rama and these benefits. So okay, so you want to talk about Namabas. Now, that's interesting that you want to talk about Namabas because I actually just had an extended conversation with a devotee about Bhavabas and Namabas. So, if we look at, let's look at Bhava Abbas. Abbas means a semblance, uh, something that looks like something but isn't. That's an Abbas. And there's two forms of an Abbas, uh, generally, a shadow and a reflection. So, first Rupa Goswami in his section of Bhaktivasamrita Sindhu on Bhava. Bhava means your ecstatic emotions for Krishna have awakened. You're not yet at full love of Krishna, but almost. You know, kind of like you could think of a teenager, they're not fully an adult, but they're not a kid anymore. Their adultness has awakened, but they're not complete, they haven't completed the the process, even physiologically. So bhava is something like that. So there's two main categories of how one achieves bhava. One is by doing sadhana bhakti. By doing practice bhakti, bhava gradually awakens. And then there's two subcategories of practice bhakti, vaidhi, sadhana bhakti, and raga sadhana bhakti. Then another major category is by mercy. You don't do any sadhana, or you do very little sadhana, and by the mercy of God or the mercy of a saintly person, bhava awakens. That doesn't happen very often. That's extremely unusual. So let's first look at the thing that I think concerns most of us here, and that is attaining bhava or attaining pure chanting through a process of sadhana, because that's, I believe, that 
most of us, at least in this room, are doing that or attempting to do that. So we generally start out being offensive, but our desire is to attain to pure chanting and our desire is to attain, attain to pure devotional service. Therefore, we're considered immature, at least I am, maybe some of you are fully mature, but I am considered an immature pure devotee, like an unripe mango, like you see a little mango on the tree and it's only this big and you wouldn't eat it. But you can say that's a mango. So it's not a mango that's useful for anything, but you can still say that's a mango. So that kind of offensive chanting with the, the attempt to become free of offenses, with the working to become free of offenses will gradually get you to the clearing stage of chanting and gradually get you to pure chanting. And during that time, by the mercy of the Lord, one may have little glimpses of bhava. I think that happens to almost everybody in the Krishna consciousness movement. You have little times you go, whoa, wow, what was that? Whether it's when you're eating prasadam, when you're doing some service, when you're chanting japa, when you're in a kirtan, when you're reading the books, when you're seeing the deities, where you're like, whoa, what was that? That wasn't material. That was something different. Sajinanda Maharaj explains that as the times when our activities are actually pure. We have a moment of purity. I would say it's also some mercy of the Lord. Or if you want to give a, a very simple allegory, if you're on a journey somewhere on a windy road, Sometimes the road is at such a point where you can see your destination for a moment, even though you may still be very far away. So as the road curves around, you're like, oh, there it is. And then you take another curve and what happened to it? Are those moments a boss? I don't think so. I don't think they're in a boss. They're not a semblance of bhava. They're not a semblance of purity. They are purity just not fully visible. But they're, they're, those are not in a boss. And the reason I say they're not in a boss is that a boss is talked about in a completely different category by Rupa Goswami. Rupa Goswami talks about the progress to bhava by sadhana, Vaidhi and Raganuga, the progress to bhava by kripa, by mercy. And then he answers another question. He said, there are people who are not doing any sadhana, and they're not getting some kind of mercy, but they may sometimes show symptoms that look like bhava. Now that phenomenon was particularly visible in Rupa Goswami's time. And I think we definitely see it when we go to Vrindavan, we see this kind of phenomena. And by the way, we'll also see it in a place like Australia, let, let's say that you find some people who are just, they're practicing yoga or they visit a temple and they may have some fleeting symptoms that look very much like enlightenment, yes? And there's two categories of this abbas. It looks like bhava, but it's not. One is the shadow, one is the reflection. Now the reflection is more detailed and specific, but a reflection is separate from its object. A shadow is more vague, but it's connected to its object. So a shadow of ecstasy happens in people 
who are not impersonalists, nor are they really interested in sense enjoyment. They're just curious. And in their curiosity, they get some touch with people practicing bhakti. I saw this happen once in Germany where this young man from America was passing through and he stopped by the temple, stayed there for a few days, was asking all kinds of questions, and then one day said, I think I'm going to chant. And he took some beads and he went in the forest. This is an aventure, and he went in the forest and he came back and he said, oh, that should be a controlled substance. <laughs> he had a bhava, a boss. He had a shadow of bhava. He's not a practitioner of bhakti, but out of his curiosity, he had a shadow. Then there's the reflection. Reflection comes from someone who is an impersonalist, or they're involved in something spiritual due to a desire for sense gratification or impersonalism, but again, they have some momentary feeling of bhava. And often that's much more um, developed, but it's separated. Now, Rupa Goswami explains that persons who get this shadow or reflection of bhava can, if they continue to associate with pure devotees, develop actual bhava. If they offend devotees, then the abbas goes away. And they, they lose it. But they have to then, basically they have to take up the process of bhakti. So... And those, that abbas is found when people say, oh, they're the Hare Krishnas. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. <laughs> or if they say, I'm going to go to the, you know, would you like to go to the Cinerama? So somebody could say, let's go to the Cinerama, and all of a sudden they experience all this abbas of ecstasy. That can happen. But that, that's in a different category. Rupa Goswami has explained that in a completely different category from those of us who are actually in the process of life. It's a different phenomenon. So it is now 8.34, so I think I should end. Thank you very much.